Well, good afternoon, church. I'm excited for the opportunity to preach to you today, even if it's on a cold day in January. Um, I pray that every word I give you today would be true. Uh, as we do every Sunday here at New Covenant Baptist Church, we will be, uh, I will be speaking from God's word, because God's word is truth. And we know that God's word, uh, we know God's word by reading what he has given to us in Scripture. Therefore, we're going to go to Scripture today, okay? and one of the truths that we're going to be considering is the revelation of God's glory. The passage we're going to look at today is in the book of John, chapter 17. It's John, chapter 17. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, or if you're a fan of John's gospel, you probably already know this chapter as... Jesus' high priestly prayer, or his farewell prayer. Okay. It's the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in any of the Gospels. And uh, it's, it's generally, uh, you know, it comes right after what's generally called the, the farewell discourse. It's a unit in chapters 13 through 17, which Pastor James has been uh, preaching through prior to this. Um, as, a, as a quick review, in chapter 13 through 17, John Uh, records the last discussion that Jesus has with his disciples before going to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be betrayed and captured and then led away to be crucified. It's all one literary unit, even though it may have taken place in more than one location while they're on their way to the Garden. Okay, but I, I encourage you, when you go home tonight or at some point this week, go back and reread chapters 13 through 16 uh, straight through, and then read chapter 17 again. And you'll see that every major theme that Jesus taught in his discourse in chapters 13 through 16 uh, comes up in his, his prayer in chapter 17, either explicitly word for word or by a direct allusion. Okay, and so Jesus' prayer isn't just like a heartfelt salutation at the end of a lecture. He's not just saying, all right, bye, you know, have a nice day, right? Even though he's praying to the Father, his disciples can hear him, right? And so he uses this uh, as an opportunity to reiterate the truth and the gravity of everything he's been teaching them. Um, and so, to be totally honest, I had read John 17 several times before preparing for this, and whether it's because I read it out of the context of the book or I just wasn't paying that much attention, uh, I never realized how it was so integrally connected with the the teaching of the chapters before it and and the teaching of the book of John. And so every time I read it, I was like, what is going on? You know, there's so much packed in there. But once I realized how it connects to the chapters before, it it totally changed the way I read it. It's like it came to life. So I, I really encourage you, to go back and read chapters 13 through 17 as a unit sometime this week. Uh, but this prayer, then, it, it contains the last words of Jesus at the end of his last discussion uh, with his disciples right before he died. So in other words, it's kind of a big deal. Okay? It's kind of like in, a, in a, a sports movie, right? At the end, before the big game, at, in the final minutes, right? Uh, the team's in the locker room, and a coach comes in and gives an epic speech right before, right before they go out to, to take the field. Well, this is a little bit like that. The, the whole of the, the discourse is Jesus' 
farewell speech. And this prayer is like the last epic uh, part of that speech before they go out. Uh, And so I'll do my best to do it justice this morning, but I hope you see that, that this prayer truly is profound when you consider the meaning of what Jesus is saying. And and the major focus of this prayer is God's glory and how his glory is revealed to and through his people. And so uh, I want to do a bit of an aside before we start. Uh, John's gospel is well known to be loaded with references and principles to the theology of the Trinity. Okay, And this passage is no different. The doctrine of the Trinity is foundational to Christianity because it describes God's revelation of himself. God has revealed himself in Scripture as one God, but three distinct persons. Stated another way, God is one in essence, but three in person. And this is his eternal existence. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it always will be. Okay, the three persons have always existed in perfect unity and harmony with each other in the Godhead. The Father is not the Son, The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Yet they all three are one God. And so it's important to have some understanding of of the Trinity because this truth is so important to understanding what's going on in this prayer. right? Jesus isn't necessarily making any point about the Trinity in the prayer, but it's more like the the Trinity is is the stuff that it's made of. right? If Jesus' words were a, a garment, the Trinity would be like the thread that the garment is made out of, right? And so it's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere, right? And we'll, and we'll contend with it as we go through the chapter today. But it, So you'll see that I'll, I'll be referencing it a lot. Um, but you'll also see that the way the Trinity is expressed here isn't necessarily about what it is, but more about what it does. More specifically, Jesus' prayer demonstrates um, or puts on display the, the roles that each person of the Trinity plays in God's work of salvation. And so, let's get into it. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to John chapter 17, and let's read it together. Starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, 
which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the, word, uh, uh, the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. So, let me begin by giving you a general outline of how we're going to go through this passage. Okay? And note that this outline mostly follows the order of the passage, but not completely. It's, it's thematic, so there are a few places where we'll jump around a little bit, so it'll be helpful if you keep your Bibles open and kind of follow along as, as we go through. And also, there is, there is so much content here that the sermon is going to kind of be like an overview sermon a little bit for a lot of these, these points, all right? But today, we're going to consider seven ways that God reveals his glory to and through his people from in this prayer. So seven ways that God reveals his glory to and through his people that we can see from this prayer. The first way is accomplishing the plan of salvation for his people. Accomplishing the plan of salvation for his people. The second way is manifesting God's name and his word to his people. The third way is keeping and guarding his people. Keeping and guarding his people. The fourth way, faith, the faith and joy of his people. The faith and joy of his people. The fifth way, sanctifying and sending his people. Sanctifying and sending. The sixth way, the unity and love of God and his people. The unity and love of God and his people. And last, God's presence with his people. And so, if you look back at the first verse, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Of course, where it says these words, 
right? John is referring to the feral discourse in chapters 13 through 16. But when Jesus starts speaking, you'll notice right away that the, the Trinitarian aspect of this prayer is immediately apparent, right? Jesus, who is God the Son, is praying to God the Father, right? I, I had someone ask me a, a couple weeks ago, like, how do you explain Jesus praying to God, right? If Jesus is God, why does he pray? Well, prayer at its core, as Philip alluded to a little earlier, is, is basically, uh, it's basically communicating or communing with God, right? And since God is eternally existent in three persons, uh, he has perfect communication and communion in himself. And so Jesus is just doing here what he's done with the other persons, other members of the Trinity for all of eternity. He's communicating with them, right? And so because, though, he took on flesh and dwells among us, or dwelt among us, right, he is praying to them as a human would pray to them here, right, because he is a man as well as God. Um, and, and so th- that's what's going on with the prayer. And so this verse begins to demonstrate the first way that God reveals his glory from Jesus' prayer, by accomplishing his plan of salvation for his people, right? Accomplishing his plan of salvation for his people. So Jesus says, the hour has come. Well, what is this hour? Looking through the book of John, the first half of the book has repeated references to uh, either uh, the, the hour that is coming or the hour that has not yet come, right? And then in verse, or I'm sorry, in chapter 12, finally, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he goes on in that context to speak of his death. Then at the beginning of the the farewell discourse in chapter 13, okay, Jesus says that, uh, it says that Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father. He had come from God and was going back to God. Then in our chapter, chapter 17, if you look at verse 5, Jesus says to the Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Um, As a quick aside, that is a clear uh, claim to Christ's deity. It's not the topic of this chapter, but uh, if someone says that Christ never claimed to be God. Well, that's an ob- it, it, that would be blasphemous to say if you weren't God. Anyway, where it says in your own presence, all right, the, the, the Greek phrase could actually be rendered at your side. And so since we know how this story ends, we can say that this hour that had come, this time that had come, includes Jesus Christ's death, his resurrection, and his ascension, where he would uh, go and is now seated at the Father's right hand, Right? So when Jesus says he is departing out of the world or going to the Father or it's time for him to be glorified uh, in this chapter or numerous times throughout these chapters, he's referring to all of this as one package. His his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification at the Father's right hand. And so I hope you realize, though, that this isn't just the high point of the book of John. This hour is what all of creation has been waiting for since the fall thousands of years before this, right? All of the promises that God made were pointing to this moment. God said that the seed of the woman would break the curse of sin and crush the serpent's head. 
He promised Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed through one of his offspring. He promised Israel that he would send a savior, a Messiah, to conquer death, okay, and to circumcise their hearts so that they might obey him and dwell with him. All right? And he promised David that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. And that's not to mention the hundreds of other prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah, right, that are about to be fulfilled here. So this is the hour, this is the moment that all the scripture either flows into or out of, right? And so Jesus knew all this. Knowing all this, he looks up to the Father and he says, Father, this is it. It's game time, right? The hour has come. So what's the ultimate purpose of all of this? Well, look what Jesus says. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So if I may take a real quick break again. Uh, since glory is the kind of the overarching theme here, we should define what that means. Okay? And so you know, glory and glorify, these aren't words that we use all the time, so that's why I think this is important. Okay, glory usually refers to the inherent like dignity or honor or value or even the, like the splendor or the beauty of someone or something. Okay, and, and when referring to God, it can also refer to his holiness or his transcendence. Okay, so when the verb form, though, to glorify or to give glory is used, it's a bit tricky because there are several different senses in which we use it. First, to glorify someone can literally mean to give glory to someone that they didn't have before, right? So literally something that doesn't have glory, you take it, you transform it, and give it glory, make it glorious, right? And so God can do this to us, but it isn't accurate to ever say we give glory to God in that manner, right? We, we can't do that. And so that's why, if, if you don't understand this, the phrase giving glory uh, might be a little misleading. However, that's the way we say it in English, so we just have to understand that when, when we use the phrase give glory to God, it's not in this sense, right? There are two other senses that we use the term Glorify. One is to reveal the glory that someone already has, but for some reason is either veiled or, um, you know, for some reason unseen or not understood, okay, to an unveiling. The other is to praise or worship or obey someone who has glory, right, or to declare the glory that someone has to, to other people. It is this last sense, of course, that we use when we glorify God or when we give glory to God. Um, but for the others, when God is the one doing the glorifying, the context dictates uh, what the sense is being used. And so if we go back to this, the ultimate purpose of this hour, of all this, was that Jesus says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. See, all throughout scripture, a, a principle that we see is that God is chiefly concerned about the revelation of his own glory. We see that, for um, example, in Isaiah 42, after prophesying that he would send this servant, this Messiah, who would be a, a covenant and a light to the nations, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. He later says that he acts for the, the sake of my name. He also speaks of his people as a people called by my name and whom I created for my glory. 
Okay, and so here we see the two persons of the Trinity glorifying each other. And of course, when you think about it, that makes sense. If God is chiefly concerned with his glory, which, by the way, is the way it should be, right? Because God is the almighty creator of all the universe, and he reigns in glory. He's the fountain of everything good and right and just and true and wonderful. And so he should be concerned about his own glory. But if he is chiefly concerned with his own glory, then it makes sense that the persons of the Trinity would be unified in the purpose of glorifying each other. And that's what you see here. But the most amazing part of this whole glory fest in relation to us comes in verse 2. Okay? Verse 2 continues the sentence of verse 1, but what it says is, since you have given him, meaning the Son, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so what he's saying here is that the work of the Father giving all authority to the Son and the Son giving eternal life to those God has given him is the way that they are glorified in the context of God's plan of salvation. Okay, This is the way they're glorified. And so this pretty much serves as a summary statement of the, the, the purpose of God's entire plan of salvation. That purpose, the end to which this plan of salvation was set in motion was that God would be glorified by giving eternal life to the people that he has chosen out of the world. Let me repeat that. The end to which the plan of salvation was set in motion was that God would be glorified by giving eternal life to the people that he has chosen out of the world. And to make sure there's no confusion about what this means, Jesus even defines eternal life for us. So if it's important to him, it's important to us. Eternal life consists of knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. So you may think, hmm, that's weird. I would have thought eternal life would consist of, well, you know, living forever. But from the Bible's perspective, life and death aren't defined by the animation of your body or by merely uh, your existence. See, every person made in the image of God will exist forever. And so life and death doesn't have to do, it's not based on your existence spiritually, but in spiritual terms, it's based on your relationship to God. And so this knowledge of God is not just knowledge of him, it's knowing him. And Jesus Uh, he makes this abundantly clear and the New Testament makes this abundantly clear that the only way to know the Father is to believe in his Son. The only way to know the Father is to believe in his Son. And so when Jesus says in this prayer things like to know Jesus Christ whom you have sent or that they know in truth that I came from you or they have believed that you sent me. This is basically shorthand for Jesus' discourse in chapter 14 in which he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Later on, right after he says that, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So if you know Christ, you know the Father. And you have eternal life. Therefore, putting your faith in Christ is the only way that we can have eternal life. 
And the opposite is also true. Rejecting Christ means that you will experience eternal death in hell. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning or if you're a visitor, this is basically the outline of the gospel that we preach here every Sunday, right? Because of our sin, of our rebellion against God's word and his ways, we, we deserve that eternal death, right? And we would be hopelessly consigned to that fate if it was not for Jesus who had come to live a perfect life and to die as a perfect sacrifice in order to take that death, that punishment that we rightly deserved, okay? So if you look at verse 4, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I glorified you having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus expands on this throughout the prayer, but essentially his work is everything he did in his life, death, and resurrection that accomplished God's plan of salvation. And so because Jesus accomplished this work, now if we trust in him as our Savior and we worship him as our Lord, he promises that we will have eternal life. And so if you want to know more about what this might mean for you or about what it means to trust in Christ as your Savior, please do not leave here without talking to me or to Pastor James or any of the other members that are sitting around you. We would love to talk to you about that. But for the believers in the room, what an amazing truth that we who are given eternal life can literally participate in the glory of God. This is truly a cause for rejoicing, amen? Now everything else in Jesus' prayer should be seen in the light of that, in the light of this summary purpose statement, that God's ultimate plan for us is to share in his glory eternally. So that brings us to the second way that God reveals his glory from from this prayer. God reveals his glory by manifesting his name and his word to his people. He reveals his glory by manifesting his name and his word to his people. So if you look at the, the, uh, the section in verses 6 through 10, Jesus starts this section by saying, I have manifested your name to the people you have given me out of the world. And then later he says, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And now when the, the, the Bible speaks of God's name like this, it's not talking about a, a certain word or a certain way of referring to God. Right? In the Bible, to say you're speaking in someone's name or praying in someone's name, that's, that's basically a stand-in to represent uh, a person's character or their attributes or even their, their authority and their will, sometimes even their whole person. Right? That's why when you look at, for instance, the, the, the third commandment, right, it says don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's not talking about like don't say the Lord's name the wrong way. Right? It, it's talking about in your life, don't claim to be uh, a follower of God and then not do the things he tells you to do. Right? Don't claim that you're doing something in the name of God that he hasn't told you to do or that you have no right to do. Right? Or on the flip side, in, in uh, the Pharaoh discourse, when Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will give it to you, or the Father will give it to you. Right? This doesn't mean that you can just ask for anything. Right? And just say, in Jesus' name, and that means God's got to give it to you. What he's saying is, if you ask something based on God's character and ask something based on his will for you, he will give it to you. 
That's what the name is. And so when Jesus says he manifested the Father's name, he is saying that he reveals the Father's character and his attributes and his authority and his will in his person. Right? And, and note, when Jesus manifests God's name, he, he doesn't just represent him. No, Jesus is God, and so the name is his name. And so this is by his actions and his words, he literally manifests God in the flesh. That's why John refers to him in chapter 1 as the Word incarnate. He is God who has come to be with us, to dwell with us. And so when you consider how this fits in with the, the section in the, the, uh, what we said in verse 8, though, that he manifests his name specifically by his word or through his word. Right? Of course, in this case, Jesus being the word, this happens in his person, in his actions, and also in the words that God has given him to give to his people. So once again, notice the Trinitarian formula that Jesus uses to describe the roles of the persons of God here. Just like the Father glorified the Son, right, and he gave the Son authority over all flesh, and he gave the Son a work to accomplish, he also gave the Son his name, and he gave the Son his words. And then just like the Son glorified the Father and exercised the authority the Father gave him, okay, to give eternal life and accomplished the work the Father gave him to do, he also manifested God's name that he was given, and he gave the words to his people. So you see, see the roles interacting there. One God, three persons. Okay, also note that while Jesus doesn't speak of the Holy Spirit explicitly here uh, in, in, in this prayer, like by name, the Holy Spirit is nonetheless there. Okay, earlier in the, the discourse, at different points in chapters 14, 15, and 16, he does speak of the Holy Spirit specifically, right? And the Holy Spirit's role here is to bring these words to the remembrance when he goes away, right? And to bring any new revelation of the Father and the Son to them. And so uh, if you look, if you skip down real quick to verse 20, where Jesus says that these petitions are uh, not just for his disciples, but for all who will believe through their word, who do you think is accomplishing that work? It's the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus will have already gone to the Father. Therefore, that's why we call Scripture the Word of God. That's why we regard it so highly. And that's why we try to order, as Christians, everything our lives around what it says. Right? This book is the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit through God's people that has been preserved and passed down to us. It's also why, not only individually, but as a church, we try to order everything we do, from the prayers and the music and the preaching on Sunday to the, the teaching and our discipleship and fellowship and our evangelism during the week, the way we do baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper, everything is ordered according to what God says in his word. This is our final authority in all things. And so, um, before I transition to the third point, I, I want to address another ubiquitous theme here. <laughs> um, Jesus re reiterates over and over statements about uh, the people of God, the people that God has given him, okay? In verse 2, it says, to give eternal life to all you have given, right? In verse 6, it says, I have manifested your name to the people you have given me. Um, yours they were, you have given them to me. In verse 9 and 10, it says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, 
for they are yours, all mine, are, all, all mine are yours, all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. All right, so here it, it seems clear that God has chosen beforehand a people from out of the world that are given to Christ for him to accomplish this work of saving. Right, and so I don't have time to really go into it fully, but this is what theologians call the doctrine of election. Throughout the Old Testament, Scripture speaks, like in the, the Scripture reading we had uh, earlier, that uh, it speaks of God separating a special people from out of the world for himself to be his people, to dwell with him, and to worship him. Then multiple times in the New Testament, including in Ephesians 1.4 and Revelation uh, 13.8, Scripture tells us that God sovereignly chooses out of the world those who would be saved even before the foundation of the world. Right, so that's why Christ, as he accomplishes the work that the Father has given him to do, he can say that he has done all this work for those whom the Father has given him. Okay, so God manifests his name and his word to the people that God has given him. And so that brings us to the third way that God reveals his glory from Jesus' prayer, which is by keeping and guarding his people. Okay, so, so God reveals his glory by keeping and guarding his people. So turn your attention to the section in verses 11 through 15. Right? When it says keeping, that's essentially saying the same thing as guarding them or, or taking care of them or watching over them. Okay. Since the Father has given people to the Son, it is implied that the Son is responsible for them. He's responsible for keeping them safe. Okay. And so, again, as we should expect from the Trinitarian perspective, the Father gave people for Jesus to keep, and Jesus testifies that he has kept them according to God's will. Okay. The only exception, of course, is Judas, who uh, uh, betrayed Christ. But Jesus is, is clear here that he, Judas was not lost because of some lack of power in Christ, right? He, he was lost because that was the plan from the beginning, right? That the scripture might be fulfilled. And so, uh, you know, this was part of the plan. And so, as usual in the prayer, the, the spirit was not named, but when Jesus says that he's leaving the world and he asks the Father to keep them in his name, how do you think he's going to do that? By sending the Spirit, as Jesus said earlier in the discourse, right? And the Spirit is going to keep those that he's given him in his name. And so this talk of keeping begs a few questions, though. One, why do they need to be kept safe? Two, from what or whom do they need to be kept safe? And three, in what way are they going to be kept safe? Right? So for the, the, the first question, the answer lies in verse 14. God's people are going to be left in the world, and the world hates them. When Jesus says the world here, what he's referring to is the whole of the created order that's in rebellion against God. Right? And, and that primarily includes human beings, and human institutions. Okay? And so, I think in our own experience, this truth is becoming more and more apparent as uh, you know, our society becomes more and more secularized. Right? But we can truly see that the world hates the things of God. And therefore, 
It hates us, right? The world hates that we proclaim the truth about it, that the things it loves are sinful and that they're deserving of punishment. Uh, it, it hates that we're exclusive. As Christians, you have to believe a certain thing or you can't be a Christian, right? It hates that we glorify the one true God over all of its idols. And it hates that we say there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, right? And it seems uh, like generally the most influential people in institutions in our society, in our culture, hold positions that consider the biblical view of all sorts of things, like uh, marriage and sexuality and even creation or life or even justice and freedom to be backward or bigoted or dangerous, right? And so um, the, you know, the world, is, it's, it hates us, and that's proven true. But when it comes to Jesus, uh, or it comes to these second and third questions, though, interestingly, it's not actually about the world. Jesus says that he doesn't want God to take them, or us, out of the world, right? And in earlier chapters of this discourse, he promises them that they will face persecution and suffering and even death at the hands of the world because of their faith. No, Jesus' concern here is not for our bodies, but it's for our souls, He wants God's people not to be protected from the world, but to be protected from the evil one. Or stated in another way, as he does in chapter 16, he says these things that we might not fall away. And so Jesus' prayer is for God, through the Holy Spirit, to keep his people in the faith. And so, for Christians, this is actually one of the most comforting truths in Scripture, is it not? I mean, other places in the New Testament, it speaks of the Holy Spirit sealing us for the last day. Or earlier in John chapter 10, uh, Jesus speaks of you know, the people that he's given being in his hand, and no one can take them out of his hand. Right? The, the, the point is that just as God did not fail to accomplish all his work in Christ, he will accomplish all the work that he started in his people, and he will not fail. And so if you are one of his, you will persevere in faith to the end, no matter what trials you face, no matter what the circumstances are in this life. And this is comforting because we know ourselves to be broken and sinful. And so if, we're, if, if we were left up to ourselves, if there were no work of God in us, we would fail. We have no hope. But because of God's work in us, we know that failure is not an option. Very practically, though, Jesus prays this prayer because he knows that there will be very real and powerful temptations in this world that will try to draw us away from the truth of God's word. Right? And so the Spirit works through the lives of God's people in, in the flesh. Like We are actually part of this keeping and protecting. I mean, I know we talk about discipleship a lot here at uh, NCBC, but that's because it's really important. And so... One of the things that we do in discipleship relationships is lovingly hold each other accountable for confessing and repenting of our sin. And so in this way, we keep and protect each other from the evil one. And we protect each other from falling away. Right? And this is even reflected in our church covenant. Uh, um, you know, if, 
the church covenant says we will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, graciously accepting encouragement and admonition. Right? It's that admonition part that is the accountability. So there you go. If you're a member and you didn't understand fully what that meant, there's a little more for you. And so God is glorified by keeping and guarding his people. Now the fourth way that God is glorified right, is, is actually kind of stems from this hope that God's children have to be kept in the faith. Uh, it's, it's that God reveals his glory through the faith and joy of his people. God reveals his glory through the faith and joy of his people. And so uh, if you go back again, this is where we're going to jump around a bit, at verses 6 through 8, note how Jesus affirms how his disciples have responded to him. Right? He says that they've kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed what you sent me. And then Jesus says in verse 9, that it is those ones who believe who he's praying for. And why? Because they belong to God, and because he's glorified in them. And that's why he's praying for them. And therefore, Jesus is glorified by the enduring faith of God's children. So when we persist in faith, right, through trials in the midst of a world that hates God and hates his people, we prove the glory of God's power and his promise to keep us from the evil one. And the reason why I I put joy together with faith in this point is because Jesus mentions joy right in the middle of where he talks about keeping us in faith and, and keeping us from the evil one in a hostile world. And he says that he speaks these things in the world that we might have his joy fulfilled in ourselves. You see, the joy that we have in our faith in the midst of all the trials that we experience in this world is evidence of the work of God in our lives. And so by having joy in our salvation in such circumstances, we glorify God with our lives, through our joy. And so, if I can circle back to what I said earlier about uh, discipleship, one aspect of the discipleship is the accountability for sin. The other aspect is the encouragement. We encourage each other, right? And we increase each other's joy in the Lord. And so again, considering the church covenant, that's why that line says that we have care and watchfulness over each other through both admonition and encouragement. And I think as many of our members can attest, it is this encouragement and this joy that makes those discipleship relationships so sweet. That's why we pursue them. And so, God is glorified in the enduring faith and joy of his people. So now we're going to move to the fifth point. God reveals his glory by sanctifying and sending his people. So if you look now to uh, the section verses 16 through 19, okay? Jesus asks the Father to sanctify his people, right? And then he also says he consecrates himself, that they, they might be sanctified. Um, one kind of academic thing to note is that the words sanctify and con- consecrate here are actually the same word in Greek, um, okay? And so... It's, it's from the word that's often translated holy. It's, that's the root. And so what it generally means is to be set apart for a special purpose. 
Okay, it's, it's uh, typically used in worship, and it kind of invokes the image of, in the Old Testament, when uh, either the priests or, like, utensils or something was set apart for use in the temple. And so, the, when preparing things for the temple, that usually required, like, a cleansing or some sort of washing, and then it was set apart for use or sanctified, and then it would uh, include some t- type of actual specific ceremony with an anointing or a sprinkling of blood in order to be set apart for a specific use, and I think that's why, in, in at least the ESV translation, they use two different words, is because Jesus here is consecrating himself for the specific pers- purpose of dying on the cross as a sacrifice. But he's asking God to set his people apart and sanctify them for a purpose that is, is, is coming in the future. Okay. And so the, the point, though, is that his people are not of the world anymore, right? They've been taken out of the world in order to be used for God's purposes. And therefore, Jesus is praying that that work that was started be completed. Okay, they were taken out of the world. Now, they need to be set apart and sanctified for a purpose, to be used by God. And so the purpose, is the, 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 the purpose for which they're sanctified is to be sent into the world just like Jesus was sent into the world. All right? And note again, the Trinity here. The Father sends the Son into the world to be consecrated as a sacrifice. The Son sends us in the power of the Holy Spirit, who will be sent uh, once he goes to the Father, in order that others also might be sanctified and set apart for that use of being sent. Okay? And note how Jesus says they should be sanctified. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, What he's saying is, they should be sanctified by the word. And also, if if we take them being sent into the world as synonymous with the Great Commission from Matthew 28, then the purpose of them being sent was to make disciples of all nations. So here, once again, we see kind of the confluence of of two themes that, that we've already talked about. The word and discipleship. Right? And so, the making of disciples, of course, includes two aspects. The the creation of a new disciple through conversion, which happens by the proclamation of, of the word. This is called evangelism. Often happens through missions, people going out. Then the second is maintaining and growing uh, a disciple, which is what we talked about uh, before, right? But note that every part of disciple making involves God's word. We evangelize with God's word. We teach with God's word. We admonish with God's word. And we encourage with God's word. It's all with God's word. And so what follows, of course, is that you should seek to know God's word as a Christian. Simply put, read your Bible. Learn it. And ask questions. We have people here that have been doing it for a long time. Ask them. They'll be able to help you. Right? Don't do it on on your own. But know it. Learn it and know it so that you can use it in your life, and in the life of the church. So, uh, God is glorified by the sanctifying and the sending of his people. And that brings us to the sixth way that God reveals his glory from this prayer. Uh, God is glorified through the unity and the love of God and his people. Okay, and so in verse 20, Jesus assumes the success of the disciples being sent out (laughs) with the word. There's like no question. Right? And so, because now he prays specifically for them and for all who would believe through their word. 
And so, um, just to be clear, verse, in the historical context, verses 6 through 19, Jesus is specifically actually praying for his disciples. But see, we can, uh, we can extend those prayers and petitions and promises in that section to all believers of all time because of what Jesus says in verse 20 and 21. Because he prays for the disciples and all who believe through their word that they would be one, just as he and the Father are one. And so, not only that the believers would be one with each other, but that they would be one with God, right? And so that's how, as Christians, we all are united. Christians today, Christians yesterday, Christians tomorrow, okay? And so as you look at this section from verse 20 to 26, it might seem repetitive or confusing, right? The I in you and you in me and us in them and I in them and so on. Uh, but the, the point of the prayer here, though, is that God's people would be brought into the loving unity of the persons of God. And so, of course, who accomplishes this work of unifying the believers with Christ? The Holy Spirit. Thank you. Right? And so this unity among the persons of God is integrally linked to their love for each other. And so... In the same way, right, the unity among believers is integrally linked to our love for one another. And so God is glorified when the love of God, when his love is displayed through the unity of his people. So to bring this down to earth, the context in which this love and unity among believers is manifested while we're in the world is, you guessed it, the local church. That's what we're doing right here, right? Christians gathering every Sunday and more during the week display God's glory to a watching world by the way we love each other. That love will prove to be what unifies us as a local body, right? And that unity that we have as a local body will be a testament to the glory of God and the power of the gospel to a watching world. And it's not just by happenstance that that's the case. That's the purpose. He says, so that the world would know that they believe in me, that they believe that you sent me. So we are to be a picture to the watching world of the unity of the Trinity. That's an amazing truth, but also an amazing, scary responsibility. Of course, living in a fallen world, that's easier said than done, right? This love and unity won't just happen. We have to work for it. So we have to we have to proactively pursue it, really, with, with, with other members of the church, right? And so understand, though, that this unity doesn't mean we will all have the same thoughts and the same opinions that we're going to agree, agree all the time, right? Uh, we will certainly have different opinions and different convictions about a lot of things. Uh, however, the unity that we have as members of this church concerns what we believe about the gospel, and it concerns our commitment to love one another despite our differences, okay? Um, and so that's why all the members of NCBC sign our statement of faith, and we sign a church covenant, right? The, the statement of faith is what we believe. We're agreeing on that. And our church covenant is our commitment of how we're going to live together, how we're going to love each other. But as you all know and experience, these documents are really just an expression of the ideal, right? We still need to work these out 
in real life, okay? Because we are still imperfect, okay? So we need to do this as we gather together on Sundays and as we gather together during other times of the week, right? As we uh, listen to the faithful teaching of Scripture, we need to do this and pursue this unity and pursue the love of one another, you know, through our discipling relationships that we talked about, through the uh, disciplines, spiritual disciplines, and striving for personal holiness. Um, and so if, I mean, if you're a member of NCBC and you're, you're not doing this, I, I encourage you to prioritize your life with the church. Prioritize this unity. Because that's who you are now. You are a Christian. You are supposed to be a picture with other Christians of the unity of God. Okay? So, um, and, and if I could go back, that is what will bring the joy that Christ promises as you're unified through love uh, with other members. So the, the, uh, God is glorified through the unity and the love of God and his people. So that brings us to my last point, the last way that God reveals his glory from this prayer is he reveals it through his presence with his people. His glory is revealed through his presence with his people. And now, I'm just going to read verse 24 again, um, because I I think this is profound and amazing. This is Jesus speaking here. God the Son. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now just think about how profound a thing it is that the God of the universe desires that we would be with him. It's an amazing and humbling truth. Right? Um, and, and if you're not a Christian, I wonder if that sounds odd to you. Right? The world around us does it's best to convince us that we're good and that we deserve to have everything we desire and that we are worthy to be gods unto ourselves. But as Christians, we don't see ourselves that way. Amen? We understand ourselves, like I said before, to be broken to our very core. We try to be honest about the, the stain of sin in our own hearts. We understand that we are unworthy of God's love because of our rebellion against him. But, we have put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, right? Based on his promise. And therefore, now we serve a glorious God. And he is glorious in more ways than I I can even imagine. But for our sake, he is glorious in his unmeasurable grace and mercy that he showed us in Christ. And so, for Christians, this is the foundation of all of our hope and all of our joy, right? So as Christians, we, understanding what we were saved from, Right? We can think of nothing better than of spending eternity in God's presence, glorifying Him. And that's what we're going to do. That's our hope. And so, friends, what I leave with you today is that our hope is that because of God's great love in His plan of salvation, that we might one day be with Him and behold His glory forever because God is glorified by it. He's glorified by his presence with his people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are glorious. Your glory 
fills the earth. We praise you because you accomplished your plan and it will never fail. And you are accomplishing it in our lives every day. Lord, keep us and guard us from the evil one. Lord, help keep our, our faith, endure our faith, give us joy with one another and our unity with one another. Send us to do your work. Lord, guide us into doing your will that we might manifest your name as Christ manifested your name to the world around us. I pray for our church, Lord, that New Covenant Baptist Church would be a light to the nations, to the world, that we would, you know, that our love and our unity would be evident to all and that when others look on, they would see the unity that you have in yourself through us and that we would glorify your name through that. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name.